When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to History Tea Time. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Dollar Princesses In the late 1800s, American industrialists were raking in cash and living like princes. But as the U.S. Constitution forbades royal and noble titles, these nouveau riche robber barons had no way, other than their mansion servants and yachts, of making it clear that they were better than everyone else. Meanwhile, across the pond, the British aristocracy had fallen on hard times. They still had their titles, historic estates, and air of superiority. But as the right to tax the peasants had been taken away in 1660 following the English Civil War, they were running low on funds. This became a match made somewhere south of heaven, when hundreds of American heiresses in search of titles married cash-strapped British noblemen. Millions of dowry dollars crossed the pond to renovate ancient English mansions and bolster the ailing peerage. While American fathers got to brag that they had a baroness or a duchess in the family. There was even a magazine, the titled American, in which British nobles with titles to sell could advertise their eligibility to rich American ladies. But marriages based on exchanging cash for coronets weren't always destined to be happy. Let's get to know five of the American women who became dollar princesses. Jenny Jerome was born in 1854 in Brooklyn, New York, to financier Leonard Jerome and his wife Clarissa, who may have been of Iroquois descent. She grew into a talented and strikingly beautiful young woman. One admirer said she had more of a panther than a woman in her look. Her piano tutor, composer Stephen Heller, believed she had the chops to be a concert pianist, if only she were willing to put in the practice. When she was 16, her mother took her and her two sisters, Clara and Leona, on a tour of Europe. In London, she met the 29-year-old Prince of Wales, the future King Edward VII, and they began a passionate affair. By the time Jenny was 19, the lust had simmered into a friendship which would last for the rest of their lives. 
Her intelligence, wit, and sense of humor endeared her to the prince and his wife, Alexandra, of whom she was also a close friend. While Jenny was attending a sailing regatta on the Isle of Wight, Edward introduced her to his friend, Lord Randolph Spencer Churchill, son of the Duke of Marlborough. As a younger son, Randolph wasn't in line for a title or much of an inheritance. But Jenny liked him well enough, and the Union gave her a legitimate place in the British upper crust and in the prince's inner circle, the Marlborough House set. Jenny and Randolph became engaged three days after meeting, but their nuptials were delayed for several months while their parents hashed out a financial agreement. The noble Spencer Churchills were aghast at the idea of their son marrying a nouveau riche American. But when the Jeromes offered a dowry of $250,000, several million today, they changed their tune. The couple wed at the British Embassy in Paris in April 1874. Their son, Winston Churchill, was born in October, seven months after the wedding. Jenny claimed that a fall caused her to go into premature labor, but many noticed how healthy and large the baby was. When asked years later about his birth, the Prime Minister quipped, Although present on the occasion, I have no clear recollection of the events leading up to it. Winston adored and admired his mother from afar. As was customary at the time, she left his care in the hands of nannies and boarding schools. They wrote each other often, but she rarely visited. Winston was followed six years later by a brother, John. While both boys bore a striking resemblance to their father, Jenny and Randolph began to live separate lives and have separate love affairs. Jenny slept with King Milan I of Serbia, German Prince Karl Kinski, and Herbert von Bismarck, son of Otto, the politician who masterminded the unification of Germany. She loved to travel and take cruises around the world. It was widely reported, but never confirmed, that on her journeys, she got a tattoo on her wrist of the ancient symbol of Ouroboros, a snake eating its own tail, representing rebirth and infinity. Tattoos were popular among the upper set. The Prince of Wales himself had five Jerusalem crosses inked on his forearm, but a tattoo would have been a private, rather naughty secret and kept covered up in public. Despite their separation, Ginny remained friendly with her husband and helped him in his political career. But they never slept together again once it became clear that Randolph had syphilis. He suffered for 20 years from the disease and the debilitating side effects of mercury, the only treatment at the time. Their cover story was that Randolph had a brain tumor. He died at 45. The 41-year-old widow remained a fixture in high society. While attending a party thrown by another of the prince's mistresses, she met George Cornwallis West, a 21-year-old captain in the Scots Guard, who was the same age as her son Winston. George was smitten and the couple were wed. Jenny chartered a hospital ship, the RAF Maine, to care for those wounded in the Second Boer Wars in South Africa, and was awarded the Royal Red Cross. In 1901, Queen Victoria died, and Prince Edward became King Edward VII. Jenny was one of three former mistresses he invited to sit in the royal box at his coronation. 
Ginny began to write plays, many of which were staged in London, and starred Mrs. Patrick Campbell. The actress had an affair with Ginny's husband George, and their marriage fell apart. Ginny made important social introductions and advised her son Winston as he launched what would become a legendary political career. She married a final time to a man even younger than her son, Montague Pippin Porch, a member of the British Civil Service in Nigeria. In 1921, while coming down the stairs in a new pair of high heels, Ginny slipped and broke her ankle. Gangrene set in and her left leg had to be amputated. A few days later, she suffered a hemorrhage at her thigh and died at the age of 67. Consuelo Yasnaga was born in 1853 in New York City to diplomat Antonio Yasnaga, scion of a Cuban plantation and sugar mill owner, and American Ellen Clement. Consuelo grew up on her family's plantation in Louisiana and in their mansions in New York and Newport, Rhode Island. As a teen, she was involved in charity work to help the poor of New York City. She and her sisters, Emily and Natika, went with a fashionable set of debutantes called the Buccaneers. Edith Wharton wrote a novel inspired by the group's exploits. At a party at her father's country home in Morristown, New Jersey, she met rakish fortune hunter George Montague, Viscount Mandeville, son of the Duke of Manchester. The couple married at Grace Church in Manhattan. Their guest carriages cause a traffic jam on Broadway. The groom's father was less than thrilled and openly wondered if his son and heir had married a red Indian. The newlyweds split their time between his family estates, Kimbleton Castle in England, Tandrigi Castle in Ireland, and London, where Consuelo caused quite a stir with her uninhibited nature and fondness for playing the banjo. They were part of the Marlborough House set along with Ginny Spencer Churchill. The couple had a son, William, and twin daughters, Jacqueline and Alice. But the couple who had married for money and a title didn't grow to love each other. George drank and spent his wife's money with abandon. In 1890, he inherited his father's dukedom and filed for bankruptcy. He died two years later at 39, leaving Consuelo with almost nothing of her once vast inheritance. Her daughters, Jacqueline and Alice, died at just 16 and 21 from tuberculosis. In 1901, Consuelo's brother died and left her $2 million, more than $50 million in today's money. The Dowager Duchess spent the rest of her life in style. She commissioned Louis Tiffany to design a stained glass window in memory of her daughters. She also commissioned a Cartier tiara for herself with a heart motif set with 1,400 diamonds. She died of neuritis at the age of 56. Her sisters Emily and Natika, who had married a British baronet, were by her side. Her son William, the ninth Duke of Manchester, propped up the family fortune again by marrying American heiress Helena Zimmerman. She inherited $10 million, but when she and William divorced, she took her fortune with her. Reckless spending continued to diminish the Montague family wealth. 
Kimbolt Castle and its contents were sold in 1951 by the 10th Duke. The 12th Duke did hard time for fraud. When he died in 2002, his son gave Consuelo's tiara to the British government in lieu of inheritance tax. The Manchester tiara can be seen today in the Victoria and Albert Museum. The 13th Duke, who currently lives in the US, has done time for selling a rented car and passing bad checks in Las Vegas. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. By contrasting both the experiences of contemporaries and the conclusions of historians, Grey History dives into the detail and unpacks one of the most important and disputed events in human history. From a revolution based on hope and liberty to its descent into the infamous Reign of Terror, there's plenty to discuss and plenty of grey to explore. One can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So if you're looking for your next long-form, binge-worthy history podcast, one recommended by universities and loved by enthusiasts, then check out Grey History, the French Revolution today. Or simply search for the French Revolution. Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Consuelo Vanderbilt was born in 1877 in New York City to railroad tycoon William Vanderbilt and Southern Belle Alva Smith, member of debutante clique the Buccaneers. Alva named her only daughter after her childhood friend Consuelo Yasniga. Alva was bent out of shape about being snubbed by the queen of New York old money, Caroline Astor, and not being included in her inner circle, the 400, the number of people who could fit in Caroline's ballroom. She became obsessed with the illustrious marriage her friend had made into the superior British aristocracy, and she was determined that her daughter would do the same. Consuelo was educated to be the wife of a European noble and taught multiple languages. Her mother strapped a steel rod to her back to improve her posture and whipped her for minor infractions. If she dared to show an opinion differing from her mother's, she was admonished, I do the thinking, you do as you're told. Consuelo grew into a beauty with an oval face perched upon a long slender neck, enormous dark eyes fringed with curling lashes, dimples and tiny teeth when she smiled. 
her mother received at least five proposals for her hand, including one from Prince Francis Joseph of Battenberg, whom Consuelo strongly disliked. Alva was determined to get the highest possible ranking husband for her daughter. So she and British-American matchmaker Lady Mary Paget arranged a union with Charles Spencer Churchill, 9th Duke of Marlborough, the nephew of Jenny Spencer Churchill's husband Randolph. Consuelo had no interest in the Duke as she was having a love affair with Winthorpe Rutherford, an American socialite. She attempted to elope with him, but her mother locked her in her room and threatened to murder Winthrop. Alva cajoled, begged, and ordered her daughter to marry the Duke. She finally got Consuelo to agree to the marriage by coming down with a life-threatening illness, which she claimed was induced by her daughter's stubbornness. Alva made an astonishing recovery the morning of the wedding. Consuelo later described how she spent the morning of her wedding, in tears and alone. A footman had been posted at the door of my apartment, and not even my governess was admitted. Like an automaton, I donned the lovely lingerie with its real lace and the white silk stockings and shoes. I felt cold and numb as I went down to meet my father and the bridesmaids who were waiting for me. It was the society wedding of the decade, and crowds lined the streets of Fifth Avenue outside St. Thomas Episcopal Church to catch a glimpse of the bride, who was weeping under her veil. Charles had also given up the person he loved for this marriage of convenience. He took his bride and her $2.5 million dowry back to the UK and immediately began renovating his dilapidated family home, Blenheim Palace. Consuelo and many other dollar princesses were shocked at the conditions of their husband's ancient manor houses. They were accustomed to modern American mansions with all the latest conveniences and were miserable in the cold, drafty castles waiting for their maids to run up the stairs with buckets of hot water to fill their baths. The dollar princesses popularized many American mod cons like heating and plumbed bathrooms in Britain. Consuelo's father built modernized mansion Sunderland House to make her more comfortable in London. She and Charles had two sons, John and Ivar. She became involved in charity work and her beauty and kindness made her a social success among the British royals and nobles. Sir James Barry, author of Peter Pan, wrote, I would stand all day in the street to see Consuelo Marlborough get into her carriage. But she and Charles were ill-fitted and both had affairs. Their younger son, Ivar, bore a much stronger resemblance to Consuelo's old flame, Winthrop Rutherford, than to her husband. After 26 unhappy years, their marriage was annulled, and Alva admitted to investigators that she had forced her daughter down the aisle. Charles married another American heiress, Gladys Deacon, who became the new Duchess of Marlborough. Consuelo married French aviator Lieutenant Colonel Jacques Balson, who had previously worked for the Wright brothers. They spent 35 happy years together, living in his family chateau outside of Paris, where she worked on her pet project of building a 350-bed hospital. 
Consuelo remained close friends with her former cousin-in-law, Winston Churchill. He wrote his famous Iron Curtain speech while visiting her at her mansion in Palm Beach, Florida. Consuelo died at the age of 87. Mary Leiter was born in 1870 in Chicago to Mary Teresa and Levi Leiter, co-founder of the Marshall Fields Department Store. The family moved to Washington, D.C., where Mary was raised. She was bright and well-educated in French, history, math, and science. Her childhood friend, Frances Folsom, went on to marry President Grover Cleveland. Mary grew into an intelligent, poised, and beautiful woman, strikingly tall at six feet with an hourglass figure. She made her American Society debut at 18 and dazzled. While visiting London for the social season, she met George Curzon, heir to the barony of Scarsdale. But Mary was far more impressed with his talent as a political writer and the career he had made for himself as a member of parliament. They had a happy marriage and a strong working relationship. Having grown up in Washington, Mary had an excellent understanding of politics and was instrumental in her husband's re-election campaign and career. Four years into their marriage, George was appointed Viceroy of India and was created Baron Curzon of Kettleston to go along with the position. George, Mary, and their daughters, Mary and Cynthia, traveled to Bombay, where George was the senior British official in the colony for the next six years. As Viceroyne, Mary was a sensation in India. She inspired admiration and respect. Poet Ram Sharma wrote that she was a rose of roses bright, a vision of embodied light. An iridescent violet rose was named the Lady Curzon in her honor. She was deeply concerned with the plight of women in India and built hospitals for women around the country. Her taste was revered. She loved colorful Indian fabrics and popularized them back in the UK, bringing a great deal of trade to Indian silk weavers and embroiderers. She helped to design the magnificent gold robe worn by Queen Alexandra to the coronation of her husband, King George VII. George and Mary organized the Delhi Durbar, called the grandest pageant in history, to celebrate the coronation in 1902. Mary wore a breathtaking gown by House of Worth of Paris to the event. It was made of Indian gold cloth embroidered with peacock feathers and a blue-green beetle wing in each eye. Mary suffered a miscarriage after which she contracted a nearly fatal infection, and she had to be rushed back to England for surgery. The tropical climate did not agree with her, and she spent a great deal of time convalescing home in London. Mary gave birth to one more daughter, Alexandra. George resigned as Viceroy of India and brought his family back home. But Mary's health continued to deteriorate. She died at the age of 36. George built a memorial chapel for his beloved wife and commissioned a marble effigy of her with sculptures of their daughters gazing lovingly at their mother. His own effigy was laid next to hers when he joined her in death 19 years later. Nancy Langhorn was born in 1879 in Virginia, the eighth of 11 children of railroad businessman Chiswell Langhorn and his wife Nancy. 
the Civil War had decimated Chiswell's business, and by the time Nancy was born, the family was broke. Chiswell worked to rebuild his empire by constructing new railroad lines in the north, and by the time Nancy was 13, the family was living in a new mansion and had money to send her and her four sisters to finishing school in New York City. All five daughters were renowned for their beauty. Older sister Irene married artist Charles Dana Gibson and became a model for his Gibson Girl, the images that would define the feminine ideal in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. At 18, Nancy married American socialite Robert Gould Shaw II. He turned abusive on their honeymoon. They had one son, Bobby, before Nancy left him and returned to Virginia. She was unhappy at managing her now-widowed father's household, and after falling in love with England on a holiday, her father suggested she move there. She took her son and her younger sister Phyllis with her. Nancy made a splash in London society and became known for her wit. One British lady inquired, Have you come to get our husbands? To which Nancy responded, If you knew the trouble I had getting rid of mine. In the end, she did marry a British peer, Waldorf Astor, 2nd Viscount Astor. He was also an American and an Astor, one of the oldest and wealthiest New York families. His father, William, the richest man in America, built the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. His wife, Mary, and his sister-in-law, Caroline, got into a feud over which of them was the Mrs. Astor in New York high society. So William moved his family to London, where he was later created a Viscount for his gargantuan philanthropic contributions. Waldorf and Nancy, both American expats, shared many sensibilities and a birthday, May 19, 1879. His father gifted the newlyweds the lavish Cliveden estate on the River Thames, in addition to their London mansion, number 4 St. James Square. Nancy gave birth to five more children, William, Nancy, Francis, Michael, and John. Waldorf had been elected to Parliament in the House of Commons, but upon his father's death, he became Viscount, took his father's seat in the House of Lords, and had to give up his seat in the Commons. So Nancy decided to run for his vacant seat. Many Brits assumed that as an aristocrat, she was out of touch, but she impressed them during her campaign with her informal American style, wit, and ability to turn the tables on hecklers. Nancy won the seat, becoming the first female member of the British Parliament. She was greeted at Paddington Station by a cheering crowd of suffragettes, many of whom had been imprisoned and gone on hunger strikes while working to win women the vote only a year earlier. She served in Parliament for 26 years, and although her achievements were minor, she set off a wave of other women being elected to office. She supported the establishment of nursery schools and raised the drinking age from 14 to 18. Nancy had many legendary exchanges of wit with Prime Minister Winston Churchill. When asked what disguise he should wear to a masquerade ball, she quipped, why don't you come sober? During an argument, she exclaimed, oh, if you were my husband, I'd put poison in your tea. To which Churchill retorted, Madam, if I were your husband, I'd drink it.
during World War II, Nancy made increasingly unpopular, xenophobic, and racist remarks. Her party strongly suggested that she retire, and her husband refused to support her in a re-election bid. Nancy did not do well in retirement, and her relationships with her husband and children were strained. Her eldest son, Bobby, was arrested for homosexual activities, and her youngest son, Jakey, married a Catholic, neither of which Nancy approved. Waldorf died in 1952, and Nancy's final years were lonely. She died in 1964, age 84. Around 350 American heiresses became dollar princesses and entered the highest echelons of old European society. Railroad heiress and vegetarianism activist Adele Campbell became Countess of Essex. Beatrice Forbes used some of the Forbes family money to become Countess of Granard. Winneretta Singer, whose father founded the Singer Sewing Machine Company, married two French princes, but refused to sleep with either of them because she was a lesbian. And Frances Ellen Work, daughter of a New York stockbroker, married the future Baron Fermoy and was the great-grandmother of Princess Diana. The Dollar Princesses inspired the character of Cora Crawley on the hit drama Downton Abbey and characters in the new prequel, The Gilded Age. In Downton Abbey, Cora's fortune saved her husband, the Earl of Grantham's ailing estate. The show was shot at the real Highclere Castle, which was itself saved from ruin by an injection of funds from heiress Almina Womwell, illegitimate daughter of Alfred de Rothschild, who married George Herbert, 5th Earl of Carnarvon in 1895. But Almina was actually a pound princess, as she was British, not American. If you'd like to know more about the British ranks of peerage and who ranks higher among dukes, earls, and barons, check out my video, Royalty 101, British Titles of Royalty and Nobility. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. I'll be putting out new episodes every Tuesday, revisiting and revamping my most popular YouTube videos, unburying some of my favorite hidden gems, and adding even more fascinating information for your listening pleasure. Want some visuals with your history? Then check out my YouTube channel, History Tea Time with Lindsay Holiday, where you can find hundreds of videos about queens of the world, royal history, women's history, and more. You can also follow History Tea Time on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to other great shows like Queen's Podcast, Ancient History Fangirl, Redacted History, and more. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlewood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, 
and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.